invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews with me this morning. We're going to be looking at chapter 10. As you're turning there, since Brian mentioned it, it is a joy for me that we get to celebrate five years together with this people. God has been very good to us these last five years. It's fun that there's some faces who have been here from day one, and there are many faces who have joined us along the way, and we are just thankful to God for each of you. And It has been a joy to serve alongside you here at Chapelwood. And one of the things that I love about being here is that each week we get to do this. We get to open up this book and hear from our God. Hear what he has to say to us. As we come, like Brian mentioned, struggling, weak, sinful, needy, and we say, Lord, what do you have? I got nothing. What do you have for me today? So I invite you. We're going to be looking at, I'm going to start back in verse 19 to give us some context. But I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith 
and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as we get started, I have two questions for you. Two questions to kind of get your mind thinking about this text and get into the right spot. So first question is I want you to think about what is the most terrifying thing that you've ever seen or experienced or even heard about? What is it that has made your eyes go wide and your, your stomach get twisted up in knots and, and you break out in a cold sweat? I mean really scared. Not just like, oh, boo, oh, sorry. That was, I don't mean that. I mean, what has been the scariest nightmare that you've ever encountered? Okay, take a minute. Just get something in your mind. Give you something to hold on to. Okay? Second question. Now, what is, what is the most joyful thing that you've ever experienced? What is that time? Maybe it was a season, maybe it was an hour, who knows how long it lasted, but what was that time when things were so good that you couldn't believe it? Like it just was so unbelievable that your heart was ready to explode with how happy you were. You felt like if one more good thing happened, you physically couldn't handle it. It was that good. Got something in mind? Now, I want you to take that scary thing that you thought of in the first question. And I want you to imagine something so terrifying that it makes that experience seem like a sweet bedtime story. And I want you to take that happy thing that was so good and I want you to imagine something even better that's so great it makes that awesome experience seem depressingly sad by comparison. Now, what if I told you that either the most terrifying thing you could think of or the most thrilling thing imaginable were coming soon? And which one you experienced all came down to whether you held on to this rock. That's it. That horrific, terrifying Knees shaking, body ready to fall apart, you're so terrified thing. Or the thing that's so good, you, you, your smile almost hurts because it's so unbelievably good. One of those is coming and it's coming soon and it all comes down to whether you hold on to this. Your worst nightmare or your wildest dream. Depending on whether you hold on to this. That's our text. That's what's going on. And I love the writer of Hebrews. I'm going to draw the links here in a second. But I love the writer of Hebrews because he doesn't play games about Jesus. I love that about him. He's, he doesn't see Christianity about just living a moral lifestyle. It's not about a way you vote. It's not about keeping good morals. It's not about all of these traditional values. It's about the greatest, most important realities in the universe. It's about trusting that Jesus is the only thing that makes a difference between facing a future more horrifying than our worst nightmare or facing a future that's better than our wildest dreams. And that one thing, that one rock that we have to hold on to, is our hope in him.
That's what this writer wants to remind us of over and over and over again in this book. Remember these? Chapter 3, verse 6. We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6, verse 18. So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. This guy's always singing one note. He doesn't have another message. His one message is hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. The book of Hebrews is written to help us hold fast to our hope in Jesus. The writer wants us to keep holding on to our rock of hope. And today, he tells us why. Last time, the reason I read those earlier verses, in 19 to 25, he told us that since we have confidence to go to God through Jesus' blood, and since we have Jesus as our great priest, we should do three things. You remember? We should keep drawing near to God. We should hold fast to our hope. There's another reference. And we should help each other hold fast. Now he tells us three massive reasons why. See that word for at the beginning of verse 26? This is why. Everything we talked about last week, this is why we should draw near, hold fast, and help each other. So here's how we're going to look at the text today. We're going to look at three reasons. In verses 26 to 31, we're going to look at a grave warning. A grave warning. In verses 32 to 36, we're going to look at a great reward. A great reward. And then in the very end, in verses 37 to 39, we're going to look at a little while. A little while. So because of those three reasons, a grave warning, a great reward, and a little while, we should hold on to hope. Or, in the words of our text, in the title of our sermon, don't throw away your confidence. Okay, so let's look at our first reason why we shouldn't throw away our confidence in Jesus. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So his first reason he gives us here is he starts with a grave warning. And if it sounds heavy as I read it, that's good. Because it is. This isn't light and fluffy. There, there's no skirting it, trying to get around it. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't say, sorry to uh, bring up this stuff. He says, you need to know this. This needs to be heavy because this is reality. He's not playing. He's not trying to entertain us. He wants us to know what's at stake in what you do with Jesus. So what is happening here? First, he says that for some people, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I just want you to let that land on you. Like we, we just take it for granted. Of course there's a sacrifice for sins. He says for some, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
there is no way for their sins to be forgiven and paid for. What does remain for them? A fearful, or that word is terrifying, expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. These people that he's talking about, they're living like someone on death row who has no appeals left. It's not just that they're sentenced to die. It's not like, well, it'll take years of appeals. I can work this angle, that angle. We've tried all those. He says they're exhausted. There's nothing left except the fearful expectation of judgment. Now, hopefully, there's something in us that says, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. How can there no longer be a sacrifice for sins? You just spent chapters talking about the better sacrifice that Jesus made to take away sins. We've been singing about it. We've been preaching about it. What do you mean? Why couldn't the people talking about here not turn to that sacrifice? That's a good and right question. But before we answer it, let's ask another one. What do we know about these people? What does the text tell us about these people for whom there is no longer a sacrifice for sin? We see six things here. Okay, six quick things. First, they have received knowledge of the truth. They know the gospel. It's not that they've never heard. It's not like they have no idea who Jesus is. They know it. They've heard it. They understand it. They can tell it to you. For all we know, they might have even taught it to others. So they've received knowledge of the truth. Second, even though they've received knowledge of the truth, it says they go on sinning deliberately. In other words, the truth that they received doesn't change them. They continue in their sin. They, you see that? It's go on. It's meant to say like, this isn't like a, oops, they had a one time. It's they persist. They go on. They keep sinning. And it says they do it deliberately. We're not talking about someone struggling with sin. There's no struggle here. It says they're doing it willingly, deliberately. It's not a mistake it's not a moment of weakness. There's no battle going on. There's just ongoing willful sin. Third thing we see, they are adversaries of God. You see that at the end of verse 27 there? These are people who have rejected God and made themselves his opponents. These are not wayward children. These are hostile enemies. Now, to see the next three things we know about them, drop down and look at verse 29. The fourth thing we see about these people is that it says they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. Trampled underfoot. Now, that's a, that should sound familiar because that's the same phrase Jesus uses when he talks about how his people are the salt of the earth. He says that if salt loses its saltiness, he says it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, it's worthless. It has no value. It's not good for anything. And that's how these people see Jesus. He's worthless. He's of no value to them. Not good for anything. So they just toss aside the Son of God and walk all over him on their way to the thing they really value. The thing they really want in life. They don't praise him or prize him as the son of God. They trample on him. Next it says they profane the blood of the covenant 
by which they were sanctified. What does that mean, to profane the blood? Simply, it means that they don't see it as holy or sacred. They just, they see the blood as common. That's the opposite. That's what profane means. There's holy and profane. There's holy and common. They see, ah, oh, it's just common. It's, it's regular. It's ordinary. It's no big deal. They look at Jesus' death on the cross and they do not see it as the holy son of God dying as a sacrifice for sinners. Instead, they just see it as another sinful man dying a regular death. That's what happens to people as they die. Jesus died So did this guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. What's the big deal? He shed his blood, so did they. His his blood's no different, it's just blood. Now think about all that Hebrews has told us about the better blood of Jesus. How it alone can forgive sin. It alone can take away guilt. It alone can purify the conscience. It alone can make us able to draw near to God. It's the only way we come to God. But the people described here, Jesus' blood isn't precious. They count it cheap, meaningless, nothing special. Finally, these people outraged the spirit of grace. Now that word outraged means to mock or to insult. They insult the spirit by rejecting the Jesus that he testifies to. Remember earlier in chapter 10, verse 15, it said it's the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us about the forgiveness of sins and the inner transformation that the new covenant brings. They hear that, but they reject all of it. They insult and mock the Spirit. So let's put it together. Let's, let's, those are little threads. Let's put our picture of these people together. These are people who reject Jesus completely. They despise him. They despise his blood and they despise his spirit. And they continue to willfully sin against God as his enemies. All of this, even though they know the truth of the gospel. Now that sounds bad. In fact, it's it's even worse. You see in verse 29, do you catch how it says they were sanctified? Now we need to ask, we need to ask the question, what does that mean? Because we've been seeing a lot about sanctification. So the question is, does that mean that these people who are throwing away their confidence and walking away from Jesus, that mean they were saved? Well, as we read this, are we reading about people who are losing their salvation? Well, we know this can't be the case because of what the rest of the New Testament teaches about the security of those who trust in Christ. I'll give you just a few John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, Paul says, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in Philippians 1, verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we saw the same thing already here in this book, in Hebrews chapter 3. There we read, We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, when people like this, in our passage, throw away their confidence instead of holding firm to the end, 
it does not mean they've lost their salvation. It means they never had it. So what does the sanctification in verse 29 mean then? If it wasn't saving. Well, it seems here as though the writer is speaking of sanctification the way it's sometimes used to mean set apart or labeled as belonging to God and being under the influence of God's means of grace. So here's how one pastor put it, I thought very helpfully. He asked that question. He says, what is this fruitless sanctification? His words, it seems to be the religious separation and outward purification that often happens when a person becomes part of the visible church. So in other words, when you join a church and you get linked with God's people, there's, in some ways, you're set apart. He goes on. They come under the influence of truth in preaching and teaching. They come under the influence of love among the saints. They come under the influence of the ordinances and even eat and drink the sacred emblems of Christ's body and blood. They feel the blowing of God's spirit of grace and they taste his wooing and winning influences. And in all of this, they are visibly set apart from the world, sanctified, the way the people of Israel were sanctified among the nations, even though many of them were faithless. And all of this, he says, all of this gracious influence was purchased by the blood of Christ. So that verse 29 says, it was indeed by the blood of the covenant that these hypocrites were sanctified. Okay, so just to make sure we're tracking here, the people we're talking about are those who know the gospel. They were probably part of a church. And yet they threw away their confidence and rejected Jesus. And because they did, there was no longer a sacrifice for sin. Why? The problem is not that they couldn't turn to Jesus. The problem is that they wouldn't. They were trampling on the only one who could save them. And they were profaning the only blood that could take away their sins. They were intentionally rejecting the only sacrifice that atones for them. So had, it's not that they couldn't turn to Jesus, it's that they wouldn't. How do we know? Because of what they were doing. You can't in one breath say Jesus' blood means nothing and yet that's my only hope. They were turning their back on the only thing that could save them. And because of that, there was nothing left for them but the expectation of judgment. Let me say one more word on that. In case, because sometimes we come to texts like this and I know that there's thoughts that pop into our heads of, man, what, what if that's me? There's a little bit of a, na- a nagging fear in the back of our mind. Like, what, what if, have I done that? Is this talking about me? Am I a person for whom there's no sacrifice for sins? If that concerns you, and you're afraid that that's you, and you say, I don't want that, I want, to, I want to put my hope in Jesus, it's not you, okay? This is for people who, again, they know what they're turning their back on. They weren't tricked or confused, or they, they looked it full in the eye and said, that's not real, that's not worth anything, I don't want that. So unless that's where you're at, this is not talking about you, Okay? Now, because they had done that, it says there was nothing left but the expectation of judgment. 
And notice what it says. It says that this punishment is even worse than the Old Testament punishment. Verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, he even asks, do you think? So think about it. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? In the Old Testament, if people rejected God's law, that's what it means to set aside, to to blatantly disregard it. In the Old Testament, we've mentioned this earlier in Hebrews, there were There were unintentional sins and there were intentional sins. Sins with a high hand where I know that's wrong and I know God said that, but I don't care. I'm doing it anyway and I know that I'm thumbing my nose at God. And in the Old Testament, lots of places like Numbers 15, 30 is one of them. God says, if you sin like that, you're to be put to death. That's the death penalty. If that's the punishment for rejecting the law, Here's, here's his way of thinking. He says, okay, if that's the way it was, that's pretty bad. If that's the punishment for rejecting the law, the law that we saw earlier God put in place through angels, through Moses, how much worse will be deserved for rejecting Jesus, God's son, in his infinitely valuable death? He's saying that a greater punishment is deserved because the revelation they're rejecting is greater They're not just rejecting God's law. They're rejecting God's son. But how could there be a worse punishment than death? I mean, that's like the top, right? That's the worst worst crimes you can commit here on earth. The worst thing we can do to you is put you to death. How could there be something worse? That's where the nightmare comes in. Jesus himself told us, don't fear those who can just kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can kill both soul and body in hell. Now look at verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For those who persistently, willfully, knowingly reject Jesus and his sacrifice for sins, they face the terrifying prospect of facing the wrath of the living God. That is the consuming fury of fire that verse 27 talks about. This is eternal punishment, not just earthly that you got for breaking the Old Testament laws. This is eternal. This is the worst day you could imagine, day after day after day. It never lets up. There is no break. There is no rest. There is only unrelenting, unquenchable fire. Deep darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, the utter absence of good. Sometimes I think we we just sell hell too short. We're like, yeah, yeah, it's bad. No, friends, we don't have a category for how bad it is. We, we use it lightly and say like, oh, it was like going through that was like going through hell. No, it wasn't. 
I don't care what it was. There's nothing on this earth you will ever go through that is like going through hell. Your worst day here doesn't hold a candle to the terror and the horrors of that. Why? Because that's where the fury of God's wrath is poured out against sin. And don't miss two key words that describe this terror. Verse 29 says this is deserved. It doesn't just say what will happen. It says how much more will they be deserved. In other words, God isn't being cruel. He's not being harsh. This is just and right. The punishment fits the crime. And verse 30 says that God will repay. Well, you only repay if someone first paid you. In other words, his punishment is in response to something we did. He's not out there looking for people to judge. He's not out there scouring and saying, oh good, let me have someone else who can, I, I can subject to the fury of my fire. That's not it. In fact, it's just the opposite. This is the good news. This is the whole point of this text. He sent his son to rescue us from that. He's not looking to put people there. He says, let me get you out. Let me save you. In fact, I'll do whatever it costs. I will give my son so that you don't have to face that. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus faced the terror of God's wrath in our place so that we wouldn't have to. It didn't just go away. He didn't say, never mind, never mind, you're off the hook. He said, I've, to be just and right and good, that wrath has to be poured out against sin. Someone's got to pay. So because I love you, it's going on my son. Friends, we won't understand how good the gospel is until we understand how awful God's wrath is. Jesus took it. And Jesus took it because God says, I want to save them. And when we say we trust in Jesus, that's what we mean. We mean that I believe in that kind of wrath and that kind of hell, and I believe that it's not mine because Jesus took it from me. Jesus faced our nightmare for us so we could instead share in his wildest dream. If we trust in him. But if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Friends, hell is real and worse than you can imagine. That's why he tells us, don't throw away your confidence in Jesus. Because if you do, there's no other hope. There's no sacrifice for sin, and it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's his first reason. Now remember, remember that this writer, the writer of the Hebrews, and he's a pastor. He loves these people. That's why he warns them so earnestly about the danger of throwing away their confidence. But it's also why he knows that we need both warnings and encouragements. So his tone shifts. He's not backing down. He's not hiding anything. He says, you need to know the danger. But then he follows up and says, but that's not the whole story. His tone shifts in verse 32. Look there with me. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, 
and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Stop there. So here's this pastor talking to the people he loves, people that are struggling and not sure if they can keep going in their walk with Jesus. And look what he does here. He says, hey, remember the old days? Remember what it was like when you first started out with Jesus? He doesn't say it was all songs and smiles, right? He says, it wasn't easy. When you started following Jesus, he says, it wasn't easy. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. But no matter what you faced, you held on to your hope. Sometimes you were publicly reproached and afflicted. You were insulted and belittled and mistreated because you were a follower of Jesus. And it was public. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew about it. But you endured. And sometimes it wasn't you, it was, it was others. And when other people were mistreated because they were following Jesus, you didn't keep your distance hoping that somehow you wouldn't be connected to them and maybe some of that anger would be directed your way. You didn't say like, oh, don't want to be associated. You didn't avoid their mess. You partnered with them. You linked arms with them. You said, I'm in this with you. You endured together. When fellow church members got dragged off to prison because of their faith, you didn't just say, whew, better him than me. Glad they didn't know about me being in that church. It says you had compassion on them. You refused to hide the fact that you belonged to Jesus and you belonged to his people. Even when it cost you big time, you endured. Even when they took your property, you didn't back down. When they closed your business or took your home or confiscated your stuff, you endured. Remember? Remember that? He wants them to remember how the Lord saw them through struggles and sufferings before. And he wants to encourage them saying, you've been down this path. You've endured before. And notice the way they endured. These people were publicly insulted mocked, afflicted. They were put in prison. They had their possessions taken. And how did they respond? Did they complain? Did they criticize the people doing it? Did they get indignant? Get angry? Did they fight for their rights and you need to treat me better? Did they hurl insults back and say, oh, you call me that? Well, what do you think of... Did they retaliate? Did they try to one-up those who were coming against them? Did they try to win? No. No. What the writer wants them to remember is that when they faced trials as followers of Jesus, they responded to fellow Christians with compassion. They responded to the unjust taking of their property with joy. They responded to all these trials with hope-filled endurance. They kept hoping, kept trusting. You see the same thing in Acts 5 when the council meets with the apostles. They call them in and it says in Acts 5, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They beat them. Like We read that so casually. They're like, yeah, I know that happened. Have you ever been beaten because you trust in Jesus? 
They were beaten and then charged not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then these apostles who were just beaten for speaking about Jesus, they left the presence of the council, and how did they respond? They left the presence rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So these disciples, they responded to these trials and beatings with joy and with faith and with boldness to tell others about Jesus. So we've got to ask the question. We look at them, we look at these disciples in the book of Hebrews, and we've got to say, how? That's not how I, I, I'm, my, it's not my knee-jerk reaction. How do you live that way? How in the world do you joyfully accept people wrongly and unjustly taking your stuff? What causes a person to live like that? Look back at verse 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They could say with a smile on their face, take it all because I have a better possession. You want to take that, those clothes? Take them. You want to take that car? Take it. You can take it all because I have something better and I have an abiding one. It, when it says abiding, guess what? That word literally is enduring. So in other words, my hope lasts as long as what my hope is in. I can endure in hope because the thing I'm hoping in endures. I have an abiding possession. I can face trials with joy because I have a possession that lasts forever and no one can take it. So we can say with Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We can say, let goods and kindred go. We can say, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Friends, this is how Christians endure trials with joy. We can joyfully accept if we lose everything. Or we can joyfully accept having anything taken from us for following Jesus. Why? Because we have something better that lasts forever. Something that moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven. Listen to how Peter talks about our hope. He says we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And listen to what he says right after that. In this, in this hope, in this inheritance, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's saying the same thing. He's saying, you can rejoice when you face these trials. Why? Oh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of that eternal inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept there. It's waiting for you. So when your friends don't want to talk to you anymore because your beliefs are shaped by what the Bible says and not by what culture says, when your family thinks that you're weird and messed up because you're so into this Jesus and church stuff, 
When you're passed over for promotions at work, or maybe even lose your job because you follow Christ. When laws are passed that treat Christians unfairly. When the world mocks you and lies about you and distorts the truth about you and treats you wrongly, how should we respond? With joy. With joy. Why? Because we have a better possession and an abiding one. Jesus himself said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. This is the dominant message of the New Testament when it comes to how do I face trials? It's I don't get mad, I don't get angry, I don't get even, I don't get jealous, I get joyful. Because if you're taking my stuff because I belong to Jesus, I belong to Jesus. And I have something better than you can ever take. You can take literally everything I own and it's just a drop in the ocean of what's coming for me. That's how we face trials. That's why all through this letter, the writer has been trying to remind these Christians about the hope they have, about what's been promised to them, about the promise of entering God's rest. The promise of a better country and a heavenly city. The promise of being with God forever. Being with the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The promise of entering the holy places and standing before the throne of God and being welcomed home as children. The promise of living forever in ever-increasing joy with no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more fear, no more tears. A future where it will be the best day Every day, day after day after day. That is the future that is better than our wildest dreams. And for those of us who are in Christ, it's what Hebrews 9.15 calls our promised eternal inheritance. And all that is ours. But only if we keep believing all the way to the end. That's why the writer continues in verse 35. Therefore, therefore, because you have a better possession and abiding one therefore don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you might receive what is promised he says don't throw away your confidence in that hope don't forget the city that is coming don't forget that it in Zion is where your heart has found its treasure there is beside the king you'll walk don't forget why Oh, because it has a great reward. Throwing away your confidence leads to a terrifying future of judgment. But holding on to your confidence, clinging to it with every fiber of your being, that leads to a great reward. Better than you can imagine. And we need to keep holding on to our hope. Do you see that? You have need of endurance. It's not optional. Why do we need to endure? So that we might receive what is promised. The flip side of that, think it through. We need endurance because if we don't endure, we don't receive what is promised. This inheritance is for all who belong to Jesus. And like we saw in chapter 3, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. 
The whole point here is we need to hold on to our confidence and hope in Jesus all the way home. We must endure. Friends, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. We, that's why here at Chapelwood, we want to help each other follow Jesus for the long haul. We're not, we're not interested in quick, temporary, short-lived decisions. We don't just want numbers, 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 numbers. Great, we got a lot of things we can celebrate. We want lifelong disciples. People who will endure as they walk through trials. For our kids, we want to lay a foundation for a lifetime of walking with Jesus. We want to prepare them not just so they can get excited on Sunday. We want to have them praising Jesus when they're 75, 85, 95 years old. For our young adults, we want to help you hold on to your hope as you endure trials. For our seniors, we want to help you finish well and hold on to your confidence all the way to the end. We want to help each other not throw away our confidence. Why? Because of the grave warning here that is worse than our worst nightmare and because of the great reward that is better than our best dreams. And that brings us to our third and final reason for not throwing away our confidence. Look at verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we've seen the grave warning, and we've seen the great reward. And the third reason for holding on to our confidence is that both of these realities are coming in just a little while. It won't be long now. Jesus is coming. The coming one will come, and he will not delay. And for those who throw away their confidence, and those who are not trusting Jesus, the day of hope is quickly fading. And the nightmare of judgment is fast approaching. But for those who are holding on to hope in Christ, friends, the night is almost over and the sun is just about ready to part the eastern sky. We are one day closer to heaven. Do you realize that? Think about your life yesterday. Today, you were one day closer to being with Jesus. One day closer to the fulfillment of these promises. And we see here, there's only two responses to this coming Jesus. We either live by faith or we shrink back. We either value Jesus as our greatest treasure or we treat him and his sacrifice as though they're worthless and no big deal. Either he's everything to us or he's nothing to us. And depending on which we choose, there are only two futures that await us all. Either a worse punishment or a better possession. Either fearful judgment or a joyful reward. A terrifying nightmare or a future better than your wildest dreams. And both arrive when Jesus does. And he's coming soon. Just a little while. So friends, hang on. Hang on. Keep hoping. Keep trusting. Do not 
throw away your confidence in him. We have need of endurance so that when we have done the will of God, we might receive what is promised, a better possession and an abiding one. May God do so. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the God that you are. Thank you that you are a God of justice and holiness and righteousness, that you don't leave sin unpunished. And yet, God, thank you that you are a God of compassion and mercy and love and you don't leave us in our sin. You provide the way of escape. You gave us your son. How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, thank you that we have him. And God, we pray for all those here this morning. God, I pray there is none who would throw away their confidence. For those who are teetering, who have one foot out the door, God, call them back. Call them back. Help them to see the terror of turning their back on you and to see the joy of instead running into your embrace. And God, for those of us who are doing fine today, keep both of these before us. Keep the warning before us that we would never even consider it. Instead, help us keep our eyes on the city that is to come. The Savior that sits on the throne at the center. The one that we get to be with. Help us to remember that if we hold on, Christ is ours forevermore. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Lord, would you help us to do that? As we sing this last song, God, would it be our prayer? Would you make yourself and your son our treasure, our vision, our wisdom, the thing that we long for more than anything, so that by any means possible, we might hold on to our hope and not throw away our confidence. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. And all his people said, Amen.